Welcome to episode 32 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with researcher and registered dietitian, uh, Dr. Dahl. Dr. Dahl, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and all the work you do? Sure, thank you. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Rose Dahl. Um, I'm a registered dietitian and I have my PhD in nutrition sciences. So a little bit about my background. I knew after I got my RD credential that I wanted to be more involved in understanding the why questions about many different aspects of nutrition. So I decided to go forward with both a master's and ultimately my PhD. Um, my PhD dissertation was based on a clinical trial that was investigating the effects of vitamin D and magnesium given as a combined supplement and their effects on different aspects of cardiometabolic health, which I think we'll probably touch base on a little bit later. Um, but actually right now I don't directly work in the nutrition field. I work for a medical communications agency, which in brief is basically a partner company for various pharmaceutical companies, large and small, that helps with their communications to their key opinion leaders, payers, and other various healthcare professionals about both their therapeutic agents that are undergoing development and those that are already approved for treatment of various diseases. And I actually got into this role because during my PhD, I really liked the writing aspect of my dissertation, which I'm sure most people would not say. I really enjoyed writing those 300 pages. <laughs> and I knew that I wanted to be involved with larger scale chronic disease research. And it ended up working out for me that one of the first accounts that I wrote on was based on type 2 diabetes. So it coincided really nicely with my dissertation work. Um, and even though I'm not directly in the nutrition field right now, I am still publishing. So I think we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But my lab group from my PhD um, cohort just published a paper this spring about vitamin D and magnesium combined supplementation. Um, and hopefully we'll have another paper out by the end of the year. Yeah, loads and loads of experience. So the whole episode is going to be centered around vitamin D, a little bit on magnesium, and then general uh, health questions related to nutrition. So just in your your PhD writing, which you enjoyed, and it, which nearly, in when I did my master's, it nearly was the death of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what uh, did you focus on with vitamin D uh, and magnesium? Um, and like, what kind of led you to to research? Would you call them if we take it way back, what would you call vitamin D? Are they and magnesium? Are they minerals or vitamins and a mix of minerals? Or so vitamin D is a vitamin, obviously, and magnesium is a mineral. So uh, largely, you know, micronutrients is, is what they are. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of fell into it to be honest. I knew that I was interested in chronic disease research, and I kind of knew what I didn't want to do, and that was work in preclinical studies, animal studies, or with infants or children. I knew that I was, you know, interested in adult humans, and ultimately, I just connected well with my PhD mentor when I was applying to schools and trying to figure out, you know, where was the right fit for me. Um, she was working with again the idea of vitamin D and magnesium as a combined supplement. And she was investigating their effects on cardiometabolic health. And this at the time, and I think currently was research that wasn't done before. The idea of combining the supplements wasn't done before. So I, I just wanted to be part of that. Um, so ultimately I joined her lab. So that's kind of where I got to. And then my actual dissertation was focused on the combined supplementation and their effects on different bone turnover markers and then their effects on glycemic control as well. Very good. So 
glycemic control that is uh, sugar or is that fat? So it's kind of, it's a term that largely encompasses things like your fasting blood um, glucose, fasting blood insulin and your insulin resistance. So when I say glycemic control, it, it kind of is the, you know, meaning all of those that it affects the effects on all of those different uh, measurements. Got it. So then uh, is it recommended that uh, if somebody is deficient in vitamin D that they supplement with magnesium as well, or, or how do they work together? So the way that they work together is that magnesium is actually a cofactor for vitamin D's metabolism and activation in the body. So um, primarily it plays a part in the activation enzymes that exist in the liver and the kidneys. And it also helps with its activation in different um, organs and different bodily systems. So essentially when you have a magnesium deficiency and if you work to increase that you know, your magnesium level to prevent deficiency. The Progression Health Podcast has teamed up with TRX. So TRX is a body weight training piece of equipment that you can hook up anywhere, anytime. And uh, I highly recommend it. I use it in every session with my clients. I use it to warm up and also for stretching. Uh, but if you are traveling, which is where I recommend everyone use it, you know, it's hard to get to a gym. Uh, it's hard to find the time. But you could literally work out from your hotel room with the TRX um, and the door attachment that it has where it doesn't damage the door, but it gives you an effective workout. I also like to add in other things like... Uh, uh, glute bands and uh, resistance bands um, but once you have the trx then you can figure all that out so get yourself 50 percent off on the trx home workout equipment with the code progression health trx and boost your workout effectiveness and consistency progression health podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy service which will help you to more effectively manage your mental health mental health is very important and it's something that all of us are realizing now especially after the pandemic during the pandemic for me especially it was very challenging and i, I reached out to better help by uh, tried out a few of their licensed therapists and settled on one for the majority of the pandemic and I found uh, the help that I received invaluable. And the great thing also is that you can speak to your therapist outside of sessions. Um, if it's not working out, you can switch. Very affordable. It's really easy to use also. Um, and if someone hasn't tried therapy before but you're kind of, you know, you're curious, I would highly recommend BetterHelp. So what we've done is uh, we've got a sign-up link I'll attach in the show notes and basically you can get a discount to get started and uh, start improving your mental health today. So BetterHelp for better mental health. It can reduce the amount of vitamin D that's needed to maintain a sufficient status. So this could in turn mean that you can take a lower dose supplement of vitamin D and it can still help with, um, you know, whatever you are trying to combat while also avoiding toxicity. So in some research, um, high dose vitamin D supplements have been given and have been given in as high as about 50,000 I use per day or international units per day when the upper limit to prevent toxicity is 4,000. So obviously that's quite a big difference. So supplementing with magnesium can help to bring that amount of supplementation of vitamin D needed down or closer to, you know, ultimately what you should be getting in, in a, a, you know, a day. Right. So yeah, it's like almost, it sounds almost like you need to take them together. Um, how many people in the population or like what percentage in, in the US uh, population are like deficient in vitamin D and magnesium, do you know? Or like what are even the it's signs a of lot, deficiency? Yeah. yeah, so it's a lot in the world. It's estimated that about 1 billion people are vitamin D deficient. 
So obviously, you know, quite a large chunk of the population. And then for magnesium in the United States, it's estimated somewhere about 50 to 60 people are deficient. So again, quite a large chunk of the population. Some of the signs of vitamin D deficiency would be um, rickets in children, which is a, it's like an inward bowing of the legs. Um, and in adults, you can also see exacerbations of things like osteopenia, osteoporosis and fractures. So relating to bone health. And then for magnesium, some of the signs of deficiency might be things like muscle spasms, weakness, numbness, stiffness, and it can also, um, it can show itself in things like nausea or loss of appetite. And then more serious signs for um, magnesium deficiency would be things like heart arrhythmias and seizures. Wow, so pretty uh, serious effects there. Um, and you said 50, did you mean 50 to 60% of the U.S. adults or... What was that, 50 to 60? Yeah, of the U.S. adults, yep. So it's almost safe to assume that you are deficient in one of these. So it's like you probably, can you get it checked out with like your, your local doctor or is there like a common test to figure out if you're deficient? You can, um, for vitamin D, your status is measured from 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is, it can be measured with just, you know, a blood draw. Your doctor can probably do it. Magnesium status, um, it can be just your, your blood value. And sometimes it's measured with your ionized magnesium, which again is a slightly different blood value. So those can generally give you a good idea. Um, for magnesium as well, you can, you know, begin to guess, assume that you might be deficient based on your intake compared to the recommended daily allowance. So for adults, it's 320 milligrams per day for women and 410 milligrams per day for men. Vitamin D is a little bit more intricate in the sense that it's actually not very common in food sources, but you can get it from sunlight. So you might be looking at your diet and saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting enough vitamin D here, but if you um, go out in the sun, it's generally recommended that it's between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. and for at least 15 to 20 minutes without um, things like sunscreen. Um, if you're sitting in your car and your window is up, that glass can reduce your vitamin D exposure. Um, and it also is dependent on different skin tones as well. But if you are getting outside for that recommended time frame, you can synthesize more than enough vitamin D um, to maintain a sufficient status without taking it in from your food sources. Got it. So you're kind of touching on one of my follow-up questions is like what hinders the absorption? So is there any, outside of the things you've mentioned um, and also for like magnesium, what are some of the most obvious things that we can do to avoid like uh, reducing the absorption of uh, magnesium and vitamin D? Yeah, so for magnesium, some of the things that can hinder absorption would be having a higher body fat, which would ultimately result in losing more in the urine. Um, having a high serum calcium can reduce absorption rates because magnesium and calcium share a receptor. And then other dietary factors such as increased fiber, phosphorus, oxalic acid, phytic acid, um, they can also lower magnesium absorption. But what's good about magnesium is that individuals who do have a deficiency, um, it actually increases the intestinal absorption rate. So if you're deficient, you will absorb more from what you take in. 
and it will also de uh, decrease your excretion. Okay, so your body kind of like self-regulates it, itself a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And then for vitamin D, some of the things that can hinder um, absorption would be poor sun exposure. So we kind of just touched on that. Um, for individuals who are overweight and obese, vitamin D can also become sequestered in the adipose tissue because it is a fat soluble vitamin. And that basically means that it's removed from active functioning. And then also um, having dysregulation with the parathyroid hormone can hinder vitamin D absorption and as well as having an increased liver fat, which could impair its activation. So it's like, not only is having a higher level of body fat, like it, it makes it kind of harder to like be physically active and stuff like that. But in terms of uh, digestion, it kind of hinders your absorption as well. Is that what you're saying? So it doesn't necessarily hinder the absorption, but once vitamin D is in the body, it can be removed from active functioning because it becomes basically sequestered means it gets stuck. It gets stuck in the fat tissues and then it can't be um, actively functioning when it's in there. Right, that it does not sound like a good situation at all. No. Um, so then moving on to your, your research that you've done. So um, you looked at the effect of uh, supplementing vitamin D and magnesium and then bone turnover. So like that'll be regeneration, I imagine, and breakdown. Um, just kind of one question on, on bone that I just kind of came to mind recently is that uh, I thought bone was just like this sort of like inactive tissue, you know, just gets built or whatever, like during puberty, for example. And then that's kind of it. Um, but I think there's more to it than that. So could you just explain what you know about bone in terms of like, I guess, how it's like, it's an organ, it's active, um, and maybe how I'm wrong in that like after puberty, it's still active as well. Yeah, so we often think of the skeleton as being an unchanging structure. We think of it as offering physiological support, but not really doing much else. But it's actually, it can be considered, considered an endocrine organ, um, and it can contribute to regulating different various metabolic functions, things like body composition, glycemic control, which again is, you know, fasting glucose, fasting insulin, insulin resistance, as well as cardiovascular health. So different hormones in the body, we think of vitamin D, parathyroid hormone, and estrogen, those all have roles in bone health, but they also, again, are hormones and they can have impacts in other areas. So vitamin D, its traditional role is that it regulates renal and intestinal calcium, magnesium, and phosphate absorption to maintain good bone health and bone density. But there's also research showing that it's inversely related to fat mass, uh, fasting glucose levels, type two diabetes prevalence and high blood pressure. And then for parathyroid hormone, this acts in conjunction with vitamin D traditionally to maintain serum calcium levels um, and chronic excess parathyroid hormone can reduce bone density. So again, it acts um, in opposition to vitamin D. But again, having chronically elevated parathyroid hormone is associated with increased fat mass, decreased lean mass, high blood pressure, altered uh, lipid metabolism, poor glycemic control. And then estrogen, when we think of estrogen, we typically think of it as being a reproductive hormone in women. And it's also um, it, having high circulating estrogen levels can prevent against bone loss in women. But again, when we think about losing estrogen, um, traditionally when going through menopause, that's associated with a 
higher body mass, blood pressure dysregulation, um, other components of poorer cardiovascular health, as well as elevated blood glucose. So those are all hormones. And then um, the focus or the, the crux of my dissertation was about osteocalcin. And this is actually a bone turnover marker. So it regulates both um, basically osteoblastic and osteoclastic activity, which is the buildup and the breakdown of bone mineralization. And osteocalcin levels are inversely associated with body fat, glycemic control, atherosclerotic risk, excuse me, and myocardial infarction incidence. So all of these different things can act to, again, impact body composition, glycemic control, and cardiovascular health in the body. But what's challenging about these, with the exception of vitamin D, is that investigational studies to try and alter levels to see these changes are difficult because you can't necessarily supplement things like osteocalcin and parathyroid hormone. So what you have to do and what happened in the case of my dissertation is that we were giving vitamin D along with magnesium to try and foster a change in osteocalcin concentrations to then see an impact on glycemic control. So there's still, there's limited experimental trials in this area. More research does need to be done. But obviously there is um, a lot of strong associations in this area, suggesting that bone is more than just um, a physiological support structure. Oh yeah, so um, could it be the case that like, uh, if someone had diabetes, for example, that like their bone, <clears throat> the, the turnover rate or uh, the hormones being produced uh, could predispose them to having diabetes? Could that be the case? I'm honestly not sure about that. I don't know if I would say it's a predisposition, but it can play into ultimately having higher um, fasting glucose, fasting insulin levels, things like that, which obviously would result in you know negative health, health outcomes in in the you know the the realm of diabetes. Okay, um, I feel like you kind of answered this question already a little bit, but um, my sort of like let's call it uninformed view would be that someone who's overweight because they're carrying extra weight, their bones will be stronger. You know, that every time they move, their, their bones will have to work harder. Um, do you know anything on that, like in terms of bone density or bone health um, for people who are, let's say, have normal weight versus people who are like overweight or who like have obesity, like the differences in bone density and, and bone health would say overall? Honestly, it's, it's a little bit outside of my area, so I, I can't comment too much on that. But generally, I think people that do have that excess weight, it, you know, you, I can see how you view it as maybe they have stronger bones, but it's also a higher impact. So, you know, every step is a, a higher impact that could be, um, you know, kind of challenging the bone and wearing it down in that sense. And we also know that um, for individuals who have overweight and obesity, that um, they're also at a higher risk for vitamin D deficiency. Again, with the different mechanisms we talked about earlier, the sequestering and the fat tissues, things like that. And we know that vitamin D is important in bone health. So there's also that mechanism at play, um, again, because of the fat tissue at that point, removing vitamin D from active functioning. Got it. Yeah. So it's kind of like a, it'd be a dangerous assumption to make that someone who is of a heavier weight would have stronger bones because maybe they actually, their uh, vitamin D absorption is being 
uh, inhibitors, like you said. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just kind of like how the idea that the liver regenerates, right? Like over time. So for example, you drink or something like that, you take in like uh, some uh, excess alcohol and your liver is a little bit damaged and then uh, it can like heal itself. Can the bone do something similar? Do you know anything about that? Like where, you know, let's just say you weren't active when you were younger and then in your later years, you're like, okay, I need to increase my activity. Can you kind of like strengthen your bone at any time point of your choosing if it wasn't strong prior to, to that decision? Generally, there are ways to, you know, maintain a good bone health. It's things like making sure that you're getting enough vitamin D, magnesium, vitamin K, you know, these different micronutrients, as well as things such as engaging in weight-bearing exercises. All of these can contribute to generally good bone health. I'm not too sure um, about the, the second half of your question where that, um, you know, ability to do so kind of reduces or flatlines from childhood into adulthood. Um, but regardless, you know, these activities, maintaining a good diet, maintaining um, weight-bearing exercises, you know, good exercise habits can, you know, they can't hurt and they can always help. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's like, it's never too late to start exercising. So um, it wouldn't hurt you if anything. And th there's a lot of benefits that we know. Um, so just on another study, you have uh, the endocrine, endocrine role of bone health and cardiometabolic health. So I'm just thinking of like uh, metabolic syndrome that's like pretty common among a lot of like US adults. Is there like a role of bone health in something like that? Or uh, is that like unknown or is that a bit too much of a reach? Yeah, so that's kind of what we were just talking about in terms of there are, you know, these strong associations between, um, you know, components of bone health vitamin D, parathyroid hormone, estrogen, osteocalcin. There are associations between these different um, markers and uh, cardiovascular health and glycemic health, body composition, all of these things, which, you know, can play into metabolic syndrome. But again, the actual interventional research is limited to kind of make, you know, these fully strong conclusions, more work needs to be done in that area. Got it. Yeah. So let's just say like there's someone who they know they've like uh, a higher genetic risk of like high blood pressure or um, diabetes or other metabolic conditions. Uh, would it be a bit of a reach or is it is it like a kind of a safe assumption to say that if they supplemented effectively with vitamin D and magnesium, they would be like potentially reducing their risk of diabetes um, or high blood pressure or is that like just a bit of a stretch? So this actually relates very well to my dissertation and one of my lab colleagues dissertations um, we had different portions of a larger parent study and the results that we found when we supplemented vitamin d and magnesium together were that that combined supplementation was more effective at improving vitamin d status versus a placebo in individuals who were deficient so in individuals who had vitamin d deficiency and this was an overweight and obese population, the combined supplementation was more effective at raising their vitamin D status in the body. We also found that there was a decrease in systolic blood pressure, again, for individuals who at baseline had high blood pressure, high systolic blood pressure, um, and the marker was higher than 132 for the systolic blood pressure. 
but with the combined supplementation, we weren't able to find any statistical significant effects on parathyroid hormone concentrations, osteocalcin concentrations, markers of systemic inflammation or glycemic control. And again, as I mentioned earlier, to our knowledge, we were the first lab group to use this combined supplementation. So these results are from one trial. So obviously that's not enough to make you know, these strong conclusions about the effect. But we are seeing, you know, some good results so far. And these, you know, these results might potentially, what we found not to be significant, it's possible that it could be more significant in individuals who actually, you know, have manifestations of things like diabetes and hypertension, because our research population were individuals who were overweight and obese but were otherwise considered healthy. So it was more, we were more looking at this research as a preventative measure versus as a, you know, a therapeutic intervention in that sense. Interesting. And just in terms of uh, being deficient in like magnesium and, and, and vitamin D, um, can you be of a normal weight and deficient? I, I assume you can, um, I guess. And then like, just how does it affect, how does your weight status affect like the deficiency. So is it like people who are of a normal weight are less likely to be deficient in magnesium and vitamin D or uh, are they just as equally uh, likely to be deficient compared to a person of normal weight and a person who's over uh, obese? Yeah, so as we talked about, there are some mechanisms of excess weight that you know can impact vitamin D status in the body. In terms of you know, the actual ability to become deficient for either of these, it's, it's kind of across the board. For magnesium, the most common sources of it in the diet are things like fruits and vegetables and whole grains, um, nuts, legumes, meats, and fish. So, you know, what you might consider, you know, a balanced, healthy diet. We know that a lot of the population doesn't eat these things, or at least doesn't eat these things, you know, consistently every day. And that the diet can also be filled with things like processed foods and shelf stable items. And these aren't good sources of magnesium or vitamin D for that matter, but, um, you know, speaking to magnesium first. So in that sense, yes, it, you know, it, it could be quite easy to develop a deficiency if you're not making an effort to get in, again, those good magnesium sources. In my lab group, actually did a study about this. We were conducting a study to validate a magnesium food frequency questionnaire, which is essentially just um, kind of a quick list, a short list of magnesium rich foods to get a good indication of um, magnesium intake per day. And we compared it against a two week food diary, which was um, kind of considered the, you know, the gold standard of, of measuring magnesium intake. And we found through that, that magnesium intake was as low as about 78% of the RDA for women, which again is 310 milligrams per day, and as low as about 59% of the RDA for men, which is 420 milligrams per day. So again, that was, that was a small population. I think we had 135 individuals in that study, but you can see that you know, people were largely falling into that um, inadequate intake amount there. And then for vitamin D, switching um, topics here a little bit, we know that vitamin D isn't found in high amounts in lots of foods. There are some natural sources, things like fatty fish, um, 
I think especially more so wild caught fish versus farm raised fish, egg yolks, fortified dairy products and other fortified foods. So things like orange juice, um, but these food sources by themselves are usually not enough to meet the RDA, which is 600 international units for adults. And then it goes up a little bit to 800 international units for older adults. But again, the major source of vitamin D is sunlight. So in the spring, summer and fall months, um, again, being outside for as little as 25 minutes or 20, 20 to 25 minutes, you can synthesize about 15 to 20,000 international units of vitamin D. So more than enough to maintain um, you know, a sufficient status. But we also know that during the winter above the latitude of about 35 degrees, which that latitude line for some perspective in the United States runs through um, the Carolinas, North Texas, the middle of Arizona and Southern California. So quite a lot of the United States geographically sits above that line. We know that during the winter above that line, there's minimal, if any, vitamin D production from sunlight. And we also know that sunlight synthesis can be affected by things like skin tone, age, and fat mass. So that kind of, you know, summarizes, again, it, it can be quite easy to fall deficient in either or both of these micronutrients. Again, without having that, you know, conscious thought of your food choices, your sunlight exposure um, to maintain a, a sufficient status. Yeah. That explains a lot in Ireland as well, <laughs> based on where Ireland is situation, situated. Um, so let's just say, because it is common for a lot of people to work from home, I know you mentioned you do, and then uh, because uh, the amount of processed food, so not fruits and vegetables and not, um, you know, just kind of more naturally current foods, uh, because it's common to, so to work from home and to eat uh, a more processed diet recently. Um, if someone, does work from home and they do eat a highly processed diet they don't they know they don't eat enough fruit and, fruits and vegetables is it a safe assumption to say that they should at the very least uh get their vitamin d and magnesium levels checked i would say it's probably a good idea you know it, it's better to know that you're deficient than to not know and you know to not be able to connect it to a variety of different you know potential health outcomes in that sense um and it, it, we, we kind of said earlier, it, it's not, it can't hurt. It's never a bad idea to have more fruits and vegetables. You know, those things are always going to be impactful in the diet besides just, you know, magnesium for a variety of other macro and micronutrients. Those will be helpful. But um, yes, I would say that it, it's probably a good idea to, you know, get your status checked at that point for deficiency. Yeah, absolutely. And then just as someone who works from home, but you're aware of like vitamin D, like, is there any ways that you sort of, I guess, get outside that like you can consistently follow, like say every week, like I know it's, it's kind of quite like, it sounds quite simplistic. Oh, just go outside. But it's kind of like, if you're working from home all the time, you know, it is, it, it, it's, it's a bit harder now. Um, do, do you have any kind of like strategies or like tips for how people can uh, get enough vitamin D from sunlight across the week? Yeah. So I just want to mention when we're thinking about vitamin D synthesis from sunlight, it's important to note that there are things that can limit that, including if the sunlight is passing through 
materials such as glass. So if you're sitting inside of a window and you're feeling the sunlight, it might not be a good source of vitamin D in that sense. Other things that can impact um, vitamin D synthesis from the sunlight include pollution in the air, wearing sunscreen, and clothing choices. So, um, you know, clothing, sunlight that hits clothing or, you know, theoretically passes or does not pass through clothing can also um, limit vitamin D synthesis from the sun. So knowing all these things, you know, the things that I do, I'm very lucky that I live in a neighborhood with sidewalks and lots of outdoor space and I have a dog who likes to walk. So usually what I do is on my lunch break, it involves taking my dog either around the block or in the backyard and, you know, taking the time to get a few minutes of sunlight, direct sunlight, you know, again, about 10 to 20 minutes um, before doing things like putting on sunscreen, because obviously we know that's important you know, in its own right for preventing skin diseases, everything like that. I won't go down that path. Um, but, you know, that that's kind of what I do in my daily life is I, again, I, I know that I'm sitting at a desk all day and I'm sitting inside all day. So I do make that effort to, you know, get that outside time, get that sunshine, um, you know, to make sure that I'm getting enough vitamin D. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is get a dog that solves your vitamin D problems. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly doesn't hurt <laughs> it doesn't hurt and you get a bit of exercise as well right I think I saw a study before that uh, dog owners naturally enough do more exercise and exercises medicine as they say yeah we walk on average two to three miles a day and my dog is 11 he's um he's getting up there he's a big boy I could probably talk about him for a long time so I'll try to cut it short but um definitely helps with again getting outside, getting some exercise, getting away from sitting in front of a computer screen all day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like uh, exercise has been like engineered out of the modern uh, way of living. So I think, you know, a lot of people are dog people or uh, they just like to have a pet. And uh, if a dog helps you to get active, then, you know, and you can afford it, of course, as well. Uh, you have the luxury of that, then, you know, it's no harm to get a dog just to be more active in and of itself. Yeah. And they make you happier. They make you laugh. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proponent uh, for both dogs and cats. I, I love animals. So. Absolutely. Yeah. They definitely uh, brighten up our days. Um, and then for um, the next question, which is a complete kind of switch up here, uh, obviously we had the pandemic and we have COVID currently still. Um, I read a headline that people with sufficient vitamin D are 20% less likely to die from COVID-19. So that's a pretty like black and white, like, you know, headline. It's kind of sensationalized a little bit, which is pretty typical of the news. Do you have any like opinion on that? Or do you know any information relating to uh, sufficient vitamin D status and, and, and its effect with COVID. Yeah, so there's been a lot of research about this recently. It's, you know, a bit of a hot topic in the nutrition field. Um, and I know a little bit of this because when the pandemic first started, my dissertation research got halted and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I started writing about vitamin D and COVID-19 because that's what was relevant to me at that time. Um, and there's a lot of research supporting vitamin D's impact on different viral diseases. Um, but we know that 
you know, despite this link, many people are still deficient. And again, it's especially there's high deficiency amounts in people who have overweight and obesity, people with older age, and in ethnic and racial minorities, who in this case are also groups that we know are potentially at a greater risk for getting COVID-19 or for perhaps having worser outcomes from having COVID-19. So the article that you're talking about, um, essentially the conclusion of that article was that the lower vitamin D status was more common in patients who had um, severe or critical disease, COVID-19 disease versus individuals who had um, a mild or a mo more moderate case of COVID-19. And that paper also concluded that individuals with vitamin D deficiency um, were more likely to suffer from mortality again, compared to individuals who had sufficient vitamin D levels. And this was, um, this research was actually done before the COVID-19 vaccines hit the market and, you know, before some of the different um, strain mutations and variations that we're seeing now. But there does seem to be a relationship here between poor vitamin D status and increased COVID-19 risk. Um, and again, perhaps um, increased risk of having worse outcomes from the disease, having a more severe case of the disease. There has been other research um, that has shown that having deficiency of vitamin D is associated with increased ICU admission, so intensive care unit, um, as well as just general hospitalization levels. So these are all, um, again, largely association trials. There are many ongoing interventional trials, um, but again, the, the research is, it's ongoing. Some of it's a little bit inconclusive, um, but again, it, it does seem that there is some kind of link here between vitamin D status that, um, you know, having a deficient status, you know, might be related to some of these worser outcomes. So again, you know, the conclusion to take home here is that, working to increase your vitamin D status to be in a sufficient, um, at a sufficient status if you're not, or perhaps if you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm not getting these sources of vitamin D in my food, I'm not getting sunlight exposure, perhaps I should, you know, get tested to know my status and be able to work to correct that. Um, and again, you know, it could be related to potentially having a better outcome with COVID if you were to catch it. Very good. So it's like uh, it's an extra reason to be aware of your, your vitamin D levels um, and also just to intake a sufficient amount of vitamin D because it's not for certain, but it may help with uh, the prevention of COVID or the, the side effects of COVID. So. Yeah, it may help. And again, we also know that the populations of individuals who are more likely to have vitamin D deficiency are also the same populations of individuals who are more likely to have a worse outcome from COVID. So in that sense, you know, vitamin D, you can do something to improve your status. You know, if you're not getting those food sources or that sun exposure, you can, you know, do things such as increasing sunlight exposure, working to get more sources in the diet, taking a supplement that can improve your vitamin D status. And if, you know, the causation is there from improving vitamin D status to preventing these COVID-19 outcomes, which again, it's not yet the, you know, the clinical studies are ongoing to kind of come to that conclusive decision. But if that link is there, then improving vitamin D can help, again, preventing 
a more severe case of COVID or worser outcomes. Brilliant. Yeah. So to kind of like wrap up on a kind of a, a protocol or recommendations around like vitamin D and magnesium, um, let's just say before someone like thought maybe, oh, I might have, I, I, I don't get outside enough or I don't really eat that healthy of a diet where I can safely say I, you know, I get enough vitamin D or I get enough magnesium. What would be like some kind of just like short and sharp recommendations around magnesium and vitamin D that people could kind of like take home after this? I would say for magnesium, it's focusing on, you know, what we consider like the whole foods in the diet. Again, the things like the fruits and vegetables the leafy greens, nuts and legumes, you know, fishes, meats, things like that. And for vitamin D, we know that largely it's from sun exposure. So just taking that, you know, extra minute at the grocery store, or perhaps, you know, finding an extra five to 10 minutes, 15 minutes in your day that you can get outside and, you know, get in the sunlight, again, can ultimately help with improving status for both of those. And then again, um, you know, we also know, as I mentioned earlier, magnesium acts as a cofactor for vitamin D's met, uh, metabolism metabolism and activation. So um, if you are deficient in magnesium and you're trying to improve your vitamin D status, it's important to also um, improve your magnesium status at the same time, or your vitamin D status might not be able to improve quite as much as if you weren't um, co-supplementing. Got it. So get your vitamin D together and your magnesium together, prep your own meals, get outside. Um, so, you know, a lot of... Uh, nutrition experts, they recommend that people supplement with uh, fish oils because it's, it's lacking in the diet. It's kind of, it, it feels almost like a, a broad sweep and just, just supplement with it because most people don't get enough. Would you recommend the same thing that most people should supplement with vitamin D and magnesium or they should get a check first? I think for magnesium specifically, it is possible to get it from the diet. Obviously there's, you know, a plethora of different sources that you can get magnesium from. It's just a matter of if you're getting those food sources in regularly, because if you're not, then yeah, it is also very easy to fall deficient. So I would say for a first step for magnesium specifically would be to, you know, look at the diet, kind of, you know, analyze the things that you eat commonly and say, you know, are these good sources of magnesium or not? And if the answer is they're not, then the next question could be, you know, is there other food sources that are good sources of magnesium that I'm willing to eat? And if the answer to both of those is no, then that's maybe when you might look at a supplement. For vitamin D, alternatively, we know that, you know, there's not very many great food sources. So it's very likely that you might look at your diet and say, I'm not getting enough vitamin D from this. The next question there would be, you know, do I live in a location where I can get outside and get sunlight? Am I at the correct latitude? Do I have the time? Is it safe? You know, there's, there's many different aspects to being able to be outside that should be considered in that sense. But again, if you're saying, you know, the answer to that is no, it's winter, it's cold, you know, I am in one of the um, subgroups that I mentioned earlier, where perhaps you have a darker skin tone, or you're of an older age, you're, you have um, overweight and obesity, then at those points, you know, the next um, option there might be to consider a supplement. Got it. And then in terms of like improving the quality of our diet, the intake of the fruits and vegetables, um, do you know anything about like meal prep services? I know they're becoming like more common where people can batch order meals in advance. Like, would you ever recommend it? Like when you were working as a, a dietitian to your clients who, you know, were particularly busy, they didn't have the time, they have kids, you know, what have you. Do you think that's like an effective alternative 
to get in the fruits, the vegetables in your diet? I can't say conclusively for all meal prep services because I'm just not well enough first in that area because I work from home. I'm very lucky that I can also cook just about all of my meals at home and I enjoy cooking. But I would say depending on, you know, if you are able to get that information from your meal prep service in terms of if they offer information about the ingredients that are in their meals and, you know, the cooking methods, the macro and micronutrients, then they could be a good option. And an option besides just, you know, getting the meal prep services would be to meal prep at home and perhaps, you know, prepare a couple meals worth or, you know, you're cooking dinner today and you make extra so you can have dinner tomorrow. In that sense, then you, you know, you can know exactly what's going into your meals and you can ensure in that sense that, you know, you're cooking something that's healthy, that, you know, is good sources of magnesium or perhaps vitamin D or just other macro and micronutrients that are important in our diets. Uh, you can know that, you know, tomorrow I'm going to have dinner and it's ready to go. And I know that it's, you know, a good option for me, a healthy option for me. Yeah, that uh, meal prepping in bulk, yeah, it's, it's so effective. And um, you can actually just cut extra so that you have leftovers and it makes uh, eating a healthier diet, like, infinitely easier. So, yeah, I can't recommend that enough. Um, so just some uh, listener questions that I got. So um, people of, like, different ethnicities, um, like, you know, they have different skin pigments, how, how does that affect, I guess, their like requirement for vitamin D, uh, their absorption? Yeah, how does it differ based on, I guess, your ethnicity or your pigment to your skin? Yeah, so it is uh, pretty well known that individuals with a darker skin tone, such as those with either African or Hispanic uh, ethnicity, as well as some other subgroups that we talked about, individuals with higher body fat, older in individuals, and individuals with um, certain chronic diseases that can impact um, vitamin or well, all micro and macronutrient absorption, um, certain immune disorders, things like that. They can all essentially limit the amount of vitamin D synthesis from sun exposure in that sense. We also know that certain other conditions, things like wearing sunscreen, you know, when light is passing through a window or pollution, all of those can also limit the effect of vitamin D synthesis from sunlight. So in that sense, when we're talking specifically about skin pigmentation, um, I found an interesting study when I was considering, you know, what I wanted to say about this topic that uh, basically said that individuals who were classified into light, medium, and dark skin tones in order to meet the adequate level of vitamin D status, which is 20 nanograms per milliliter of 25 hydroxy vitamin D. That's what the measurement is. It said that up to 2000 IUs per day might be needed in supplementation above um, at that point, what was getting from any dietary intake for the individuals with the darkest skin tones and the highest weights as well. Um, you know, to maintain that sufficient vitamin D status. So again, in that sense, we know that your skin pigmentation can play a big role on if, you know, sun exposure is going to be enough or if you might need to look into having supplementation at that point. Got it. So is it, maybe I'm like being overly reductionistic, but is it the darker your skin pigment, the more likely you are to be deficient in vitamin D? 
I don't know if it's necessarily the more likely you are to be deficient, but the darker skin pigmentation can indicate that you might have a higher or a harder time synthesizing vitamin D from sun exposure, which we know is the main source of where you would get vitamin D. Got it. Okay. And then just in terms of like your circadian rhythm, your sleep, like schedule, do you know of any interaction? Like, you know, let's say for example, you're going across different time zones, like does that impact like your vitamin D levels or even like your um, magnesium levels? I don't think I would say that it necessarily impacts levels, just, you know, traveling in that sense. But um, when I was looking into this as well, as well, vitamin D is involved with the production of melatonin, which is a hormone that helps to regulate circadian rhythms and sleep. Um, and there's also associations between vitamin D deficiency and sleep quality. So having deficiency might disrupt sleep um, along with its associations with things like if you have vitamin D deficiency, there's also association with poor glycemic control, having you know dysregulated blood glucose levels may also impact sleep, high blood pressure may impact sleep. You know, all of these things may ultimately impact sleep. However, in this area, there's not very concrete support from the interventional studies that are showing a benefit of supplementing vitamin D for improving sleep quality. Um, so more research needs to be done in that sense, but there does seem to at least be that association where vitamin D deficiency is associated with poorer sleep quality. Alternatively here for magnesium, magnesium plays a role in muscle relaxation. So if you are familiar, there's a very well-known brand of supplement called Calm Supplements. They're in drink mixes. I think you can get them in pills as well. They're magnesium based and people like to take them before bed because as the name says, it's supposed to help calm you. And that's likely because of, again, magnesium's role in muscle relaxation. So here as well, there might be both an indirect and that direct role with sleep and circadian rhythm, both from magnesium and vitamin Ds, independent associations and potential independent effects, as well as magnesium's role in vitamin D metabolism and activation that could, you know, further that impact if it's there. Okay, got it. And then I'm just thinking of, you, you mentioned the latitudes before, is there any different recommendation for vitamin D based on the different like uh, positions you could be related to the equator? So for example, like the, the different levels of sunlight, you know, you spoke about like um, the, just the different locations you could live at. So is, is there vitamin D recommendations per like, you know, uh, area you live in in the world or is it just kind of a general recommendation? I don't think there's different recommendations. So we know that again, depending on the latitude that you're at um, and you know the time of year that you're at, summer versus winter, your synthesis of vitamin D from the sunlight can be different, but the body is actually smart in the sense that the body can limit its vitamin D synthesis. If you're somebody that you know perhaps works outside or you're outside a lot, you're not just going to be you know continuing to synthesize and putting yourself into you know a toxic state from vitamin D. Your body is smart and can regulate that, um, as opposed to perhaps if you were you know taking a large vitamin D supplement, the body again, can regulate it differently. Um, so yeah, again, as far as I know, there's not really a different recommendation. It's more of, you know, just having that awareness that if you're somewhere 
where sun exposure and the vitamin D synthesis from it is not going to be good, or, you know, it's not the ideal time of year, then that's when you might, you know, consider using a supplement in that sense. Okay. Got it. And then just a supplement I haven't heard of, but that was uh, asked by listeners, uh, K2. So does K2 interact? Could you explain what K2 is? And uh, if you know about it, and uh, does it affect uh, like calcium or vitamin D or magnesium absorption? Yeah, so K2, it's, it's uh, vitamin K, which vitamin K, I think the, the connection here with this question is that vitamin K also plays a role in bone health. So um, as well as calcium. So I think that's where the connection is, is. So if you're taking too much vitamin K, is it going to, you know, play into, again, all of this, um, you know, these factors of bone health. But as far as if you're taking vitamin K, is there any other detrimental effect of having increased vitamin D in that sense? I would say yes, because as we talked about, there is an upper limit for vitamin D. It's 4,000 international units a day. When you look on the shelves at you know, your grocery store or your pharmacy, some of the common supplement amounts for vitamin D are 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, and potentially even up to 10,000 IUs per day of vitamin D. So obviously those last two are above that upper limit, that toxicity level. So I would say, you know, if you're considering a supplementation to stick to one of those lower amounts, you know, relatively lower amounts in this case of, you know, a thousand or 2000 I use per day. And that also relates back to the research that I was talking about earlier that said for individuals, even with the darkest skin tones, about 2000 I use per day, um, you know, what was what they found would, would be the amount needed to maintain an adequate status. So I would, again, recommend not going close to not going over that toxicity level on a daily basis, because as we know, again, you know, vitamin D toxicity can have, you know, un, unwanted side effects, every, anything from GI distress all the way to kidney stones, heart arrhythmias, um, tissue damage, you know, things that you, you don't want, you want to avoid. So yeah, that all that stuff sounds pretty uh, detrimental to health. We want to avoid that toxicity. Um, just going back to like uh, people of uh, a different pigmentation. Um, is there any specific recommendations for people with a darker skin tone or pigmentation? Um, like should just to recap, like should they take like more vitamin D or magnesium um, or uh, are the general recommendations enough? So for magnesium, skin tone doesn't really plain effect here because magnesium is mainly sourced from the diet. So in that sense, you know, skin tone really shouldn't impact anything there for vitamin D. We know that, you know, sun exposure, the vitamin D synthesis for individuals with darker skin tones might not be as high as what it is for individuals with lighter skin tones. There's not necessarily a different recommendation for what is considered the, you know, adequate status, which is from, you know, blood measurement. Um, and there's also not necessarily a difference in terms of your recommended, uh, you know, daily intake in that sense. Those are kind of set across the board. It's that it's more so in that sense that you might have to consider a different way to get vitamin D. So if you, you know, you can't, you know, synthesize it as well from the sunlight, then again, that might be, you know, somebody who potentially turns to using a supplement. Okay, great. Um, and then just in terms of like, uh, everything we've discussed, is there any kind of 
takeaway messages you'd like to leave listeners with or uh, maybe any links or information that you're currently uh, working on that uh, you can point people to? Yeah, I mean, I would say for take home messages here is that obviously, you know, vitamin D and magnesium are both very important for a number of reasons in the body. And there's, you know, high rates of deficiency of both in the adult population. So again, it's important to perhaps, you know, take that extra few minutes per day to consider if you're getting enough magnesium in your diet, if you're getting vitamin D in your diet or from sunlight, and if not, perhaps considering getting, you know, tested for your status and thinking about different options of how you can improve your status, which there is still research ongoing and some of it is inconclusive, but there are, you know, vitamin D is potentially linked to a number of different health outcomes. Anything that we talked about today from improving glycemic control, perhaps improving cardiovascular health, preventing, you know, worse outcomes from COVID-19, you know, the, across the board. So we can say that, you know, again, it doesn't hurt sure to have adequate vitamin d and magnesium status but it could hurt to be deficient so that's kind of the take-home message that i would um, give here in terms of links um you know i can pass along some to you ross that you can include perhaps with this episode about some of the research that i've done some of the writing that i've done um in terms of the you know the combined supplementation to give a little bit more information about, again, how magnesium really plays into vitamin D's metabolism and activation and some of the um, effects that it could potentially have. And again, the research is ongoing. My lab was, to our knowledge, the first people that combine these supplements. So hopefully we will, um, you know, see more in coming years of this combined supplementation to hopefully, you know, find a, um, an impact. Brilliant. Um, just one final question that came to mind is uh, just between men and women. So is there any difference between recommendations, absorption, any, anything that we covered that men versus women should be aware of? Because I kind of got to ask that question, but I'm just thinking of it now as we wrap up. Yeah, so for magnesium, there are different um, recommended daily allowances. It's 310 milligrams for women and 420 milligrams for men, um, for adults. For vitamin D, the recommendation is the same across the board. It's 600 international units per day. So that's um, similar. Some of the things that we talked about that could perhaps limit um, vitamin D synthesis from the sunlight. Um, you know, we talked about things like skin tones, but we also talked about body fat. So we know that, you know, men and women exist with different body fat percentages just by biological nature. So that might be something to consider there. Um, and then for magnesium, jumping back over there, um, you know, we talked about some of the different food sources. So I would say, you know, depending on the dietary differences, perhaps between a male and a female and, you know, the amount eaten per day, again, just considering if your food sources are, you know, strong, good sources of magnesium. Brilliant. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Rhodes. This has been uh, very, very informative. Thank you.